The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. I've already told you that my brother Larry and I run a game company called Quirky Engine Entertainment, and I've told you about a few of our games. Well, I want to tell you about another one of our games today because it's somehow relevant to today's story. The game is called Panic Fire, or if you want the collector's edition, it's called Shoot Your Friends. Shoot Your Friends slash Panic Fire is a lightning fast game that pits opponents across from each other with nothing but a toy gun and a deck of cards between them. Be the first to create lethal combinations of cards on the table to become either the shooter or the shootee. To play Panic Fire, you must have fast reflexes, quick thinking, and an itchy trigger finger. Panic Fire is a little bit like California Speed, only with a gun. The game comes with an electronic gun that makes cool sounds. Also, you can attach a silencer, a scope, and a groovy flashlight to increase your accuracy as you shoot your opponents across the table. For Panic Fire slash Shoot Your Friends, we were fortunate enough to receive an endorsement from none other than Brian Tinsman, He was the lead designer on Magic the Gathering, Issue 7, the Gathering TCG releases. Brian said, Panic Fire is a raucous, wonderfully surprising game that you'll be talking about the next day. Also, New York Times best-selling author of the Monster Hunter series and a lot of other great novels, Larry Correa, endorsed Panic Fire slash Shoot Your Friends with this. Panic Fire is a fast, frantic, silly, good time. You can get Panic Fire on Amazon.com. Unfortunately, Amazon banned the original collector's version called Shoot Your Friends. Apparently, they had a problem with the original title and the fact that the game contains a black plastic pistol. If you want the original, and that's what I would recommend, you can pick it up from QuirkyEngineEntertainment.com. I don't know what it is about zombies. This, the first season of the Terrifying Lies podcast, seems to be riddled with stories about the undead. I suppose I used to have a fascination with them. In my younger days, I loved George A. Romero's movies, Night of the Living Dead, Day of the Dead, and Dawn of the Dead. It seemed that I would watch anything I could get my hands on if it had zombies. Well, times change. To be honest, Although I've spent a lot of time writing about zombies, I don't really like zombie movies anymore. If I'm being honest, they gross me out a little bit. I still have yet to see even one episode of The Walking Dead. I remember one time when we were filming a trailer for one of our board games, a delightful little joint called Shoot Your Friends slash Panic Fire, which I've already told you about. I told everybody that I didn't really want to be known as the zombie guy. Someone quickly pointed out that I'd composed three zombie-themed albums and that my debut novel was called Allied Zombies for Peace. This book pitted zombies against the KKK in a 1968 civil rights demonstration. I accepted that, although I hadn't intended such, I'd kind of become the zombie guy. 
I vowed that day to never write about zombies again. But all of that work about the undead remains in my backlog. Don't get me wrong, I'm proud of my fiction about the undead. I suppose I've just written enough of it for an entire lifetime. But that doesn't prevent me from sharing it with you. As I round down on the end of Season 1 of the Terrifying Lies podcast, I'm going to give you a zombie apocalypse story that ties in the undead, religion, and music. I hope you like it. So for this, Episode 11, and Episode 12, and Episode 13, I'm going to give you in three parts a story called The Bloody Journal of Lance King. I give you my guarantee this story doesn't have much chewing. The Bloody Journal of Lance King, Part 1 of 3, written and performed by Craig Nibo. One, May 3rd, Year 1. I just wiped the bloodstains from my guitar. Somehow, a pair of those undead monsters got in through the service door on the back of the building. I didn't hear them coming until it was too late to get a proper weapon. They pushed through my recording studio door and caught me with my pants down. I went at them with my axe. I'm not talking about a rail-splitting axe. I'm talking about my acoustic Ibanez guitar. It isn't even a great guitar. It's a laminate top rather than spruce. It's nickel strings. Give it an annoying high-end buzz. But it's the only guitar I have. I'm hoping to make a pilgrimage to a music store if I can make it through the wreckage and zombies. But that'll have to wait till I can muster up more courage and bullets. I'm happy to be alive, I suppose, but I broke the head of my axe off in the fight. I'll have to find some glue to fix it. I can't live without music. I miss standing on stage in the limelight playing for real, living, breathing people. But there aren't any people around anymore. I'm not much of a journal keeper, but this incident in the studio has prompted me to put down some kind of a record, both in word and in song, of my story. I suppose it might help someone who comes along later if this epidemic or whatever it is runs its course and kills us all. For now, suffice it to say, greetings. My name is Lance King. I live in an abandoned school. I'm surrounded by zombies. I'm a musician with no audience. And I'm running out of bullets. Two, May 10th, Year One. I can't stop thinking about Suzanne White. Strong link connects childhood sweethearts. I've had many girlfriends since the fourth grade when I pushed her in the swings, all shy and blushing. She asked why I was treating her so nice. I know she's had many boyfriends since too. I know because I can list them. There's Marshall Dunn in junior high who played on the basketball team and treated everybody like his welcome mat. There's Billy Iverson with his pencil neck and mathlete letter. There was Jack, although everyone called him Jewel. There was Pierce, who I swear practiced moving his eyebrows in the mirror every morning. The list goes on. Last I saw Suzanne, she was well on her way to turning undead. There was dirt in her unusually beautiful hair. Her smell went beyond body odor. I was lucky to get away alive. I wonder where she is now. I wonder if the mercenaries got her or if she's still just wandering around out there. 
all lonely and terrified. I wonder if, in some strange way, she's still beautiful. May 13th, year one. I went to junior high school here at Warden. I've even taken to using my old locker from the ninth grade to store what weapons I have. It's cold most of the time, but the season is on the change. I'm sure I'll be roasting within a few weeks. Living in an abandoned school feels a bit murky. There are lots of rooms, some of which I've locked undead insurgents into and left them to their own devices. They pound on the doors, moan. Sometimes they even get out a semblance of words. Although I don't understand the rasps and snatches of language, they do everything in those rooms but die. Yesterday, I decided to go out to the grounds to shoot a few hoops. It seemed quiet. Zombies tend to lurch along slowly, so I wasn't worried about an attack. The basketball courts are surrounded by a 12-foot chain-link fence, so there's plenty of time to run if visitors decide to drop in. As I shot hoops, they spotted Mr. Barry standing in a copse of sycamores off the east side of the basketball court. He just stood there, looking at me. I almost thought I caught a hint of forlornness in his expression. Mr. Barry taught me gym class back when I was a warden. I think he was still there when the outbreak happened. Back in the eighth grade, Mr. Barry broke up a fight between me and Lem Shipley. Out of the bike racks, Lem broke my nose. I was glad Mr. Barry came along. Both I and Mr. Barry knew Lem was a bad seed, so it didn't surprise me when he gave me a pass on our brawl and saw to it the Lem was suspended. As I looked across the grounds at Mr. Barry, I felt like I should jog over him and say hi. It was clear that he'd turned. He had the telltale hollowness in the cheeks, and half his shirt lay torn down in his pale body. Seeing him out there just standing and staring, maybe salivating a little bit at the possibility of sinking his teeth into my flesh, caused me to lose my game. I went back into the school, a bit depressed, Maybe it will be a better day tomorrow. Four, May 16th, year one. So many flies. I had to force my way into a janitorial supply closet upstairs in the school with a crowbar find a can of spray insecticide. Been spraying it around the door jams. I think it's helped. I can't escape the sense that putrid insects are standing by waiting for me to die so they can do the ugly thing that flies do on my carry-on. I have news for them. I'm gonna survive. I have plenty of canned food. I have my glued-together guitar. I have books. Everything I need to keep it together. The only problem is the quiet. I try to get outside in the yard to work out, stay in shape, but it's all me. There are no trucks droning by, no fans, no voices chatting through the halls, no sirens, not even the distant sound of a jackhammer-wielding crew. It's eerie. I hate to use that word, but the only one that fits. The quiet gets to me. Eventually, to break the monotony, I think I might have to make a pilgrimage outside the school. Been watching the zombies shuffle around, they move slow. I think I could sidestep them. I don't have the guts to leave my compound. For now, it's the music that keeps me together. I'll keep riding. I'll keep biding my time. Five, 
5, May 18th, year 1. Call me crazy, but I'm thinking about leaving the school. Not on a permanent basis by any means, but I have a hankering for fresh air and fruit pies. Funny the little things I crave. One of the first items of business upon setting myself up in this big, cold school was getting food. I checked through the refrigerators and pantries in the lunchroom and found enough staples to keep me into the bad-tasting flour paste and beans I'd been eating for the past month. I beat the crap out of a vending machine on the second floor until I got inside. I pretty much demolished my stash of chips and candy bars. The worst part of it is, I'm out of fruit pies. Man, I love those. I crave them. If for no other reason, I think I might leave the compound just to find a bag of them to bring back with me. If I do leave, I need to find weapons. I'm sure I can dig up an aluminum baseball bat, but what I really need is a gun. I'm going to start prying lockers open. Maybe some wayward student kept a firearm in his book bag. Who knows? It's a sick world. I don't really have the stomach for killing, even one of those zombies out there. But I'll kill if I have to. I have it in me. Six, May 23rd, year one. I spent the past three days moving from locker to locker, prying them open one by one. As I worked, I made a pile of anything I found useful, sanitary supplies, deodorant, although I don't know who I'm trying to impress. <laughs> I found books, mainly the classics on the literary book lists. There are a few pop novels, some Stephen King, some Dean Koontz. Funny how, while fighting to survive in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, I'm drawn to stories about monsters, chalk it up to maintaining my sanity, perhaps losing it. I found several MP3 players with varying levels of charge on them. One of them, an off-brand unit I found in a kid's locker plastered with Metallica posters, is a playlist that I can accept. Pink Floyd, The Ramones, Rush. Any MP3 players I found with flowers on them or jacketed in pink covers have been stored in a dark corner of the school in case of an emergency. I'm not much of a Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber fan. In one locker, I found what I was looking for. Tucked into the pocket of a student body officer's sweater. It was a Glock 9mm. That wasn't all. I also found three boxes of Girl Scout Samoa cookies and two cartons of bullets. The sweater, hanging from the hook, has Bill Spillman embroidered on its chest. Some girl pressed her lips against the inside of the locker door, left her signature in red lipstick, Seems Mr. Spillman had everything, including the perfect girlfriend, plenty of ammunition. Thanks, Bill. My next zombie kill is dedicated to you. Seven, May 26th, year one. I'm not a killer. I've done a lot of things in my life, some of which I regret but I'm not a killer. I remember going hunting with my cousin back when I was about 13 years old. His uncle sat around the fire at night, swearing, farting, telling stories. I don't think the hunting trip was much about hunting. My cousin and I spent the better part of the trip riding motorcycles around the trails. One day, we took 22s with us. As we rode, we saw lots of squirrels. At one point, we stopped for a little sports shooting. I aimed at a squirrel. I remember swallowing hard, not wanting to shoot, but I couldn't ignore my cousin's peer pressure. I pulled the trigger and dropped the little creature out of a tree. It fell on its head and broke its neck. 
It lay on the ground, twitching and making horrible noises. A sympathy. I put ten more rounds into it before it finally stopped writhing. Told myself that day I would never shoot another living thing. What I shot, just outside the school grounds today, wasn't a living thing. At least, that's what I keep telling myself. I decided to leave the school. I didn't make it a quarter of a mile before I met Mr. Barry, my old gym teacher. He still wore that same gray sweatsuit I remember, only it was sauced with grime and gore. He came at me, slow, lurching, reaching. I raised my Glock and told him to stop, but he didn't listen. He just kept coming, his mouth open, his eyes sunken and distant. I had to shoot him like the squirrel. I missed with my first two shots. Felt panicked. But I got my head around what I was doing, took the time to aim carefully, and put a bullet in his forehead. He dropped like a bag of cannonballs. Then he writhed there, arching and gutting out groans and hisses. I shot him three more times, and then I threw up. I don't think I'll ever get used to it. Killing them, I mean. Mr. Barry wasn't a living thing, but he was a moving thing. Gonna have to find the guts somehow to do what I know I'm eventually gonna have to do. Fourth year one. I think the zombies are getting smarter. The school is huge, quiet, damp, and gloomy. I found a cool corner of the cafeteria where I've taken to sitting and doing nothing but staring at the opposite wall, sometimes for better than an hour. The world is shot to oblivion out there. I don't know if there's anyone left alive. I've got to get out of here before they come in after me. I found a motorcycle in the parking lot. I don't know how much gas is in the tank. Cars jam the streets, stacked up along the lanes like a train of coffins. At least on a bike, I think I can weave around them and find a way through. I'm going to leave the school tomorrow. Next time I check in, it'd be from the outside. Wish me luck. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Terrifying Lies Podcast. 9. June 27th, Year 1. I've never experienced fear so potent. It's when I mounted my motorcycle, but around away from Warden. I felt naked and vulnerable. As I hit the streets, not being an experienced cyclist, constantly maneuvering around stopped traffic is a challenge, but I'm getting used to it. The streets are jammed up with cars and trucks. It's like people just turned off their vehicles, got out and walked away. I've seen a few morbid sights. Human remains behind the wheel, eyes gouged out, throats bitten into, parts of bodies torn away for easy protein. Glad I wasn't commuting home from work when the outbreak hit. It still astounds me how quickly it all happened. The news always fishing for new disasters to put up on the waves jumped all over the outbreak. They called it a disease, but I'm not sure it's as simple as that. I can't help but feel a sense of justice in the whole affair. I don't know what we humans could possibly have done to reap such retaliation, but I sense that a higher or lower power has a hand in our circumstances. I watched a newsman who looked like a retired Chippendale dancer report a strange new outbreak. 
then flipped the channel to watch an episode of Man vs. Food. I didn't believe any of it. I don't think anyone did initially. But within 24 hours, people around me changed. They started shooting at each other, chewing on each other, setting each other's homes and businesses on fire. It seems impossible that such a condition can spread so rapidly. But here I am, weaving through traffic like a fly, cutting my way toward town for supplies. I suspect the zombies will get me eventually, but I'm good at running. I learned that by being the scrawniest kid in school. Braces, headgear, and glasses didn't help much either in my standing against the house bullies. I'm more likely to turn tail and run than to fight it out. It's probably why I'm alive. I've encountered a few of them along the way. They turn and stagger toward me when they sense me. I'm too fast. Especially on my bike. I'm getting close to town. I suspect I'll be there within a couple of hours. With all the looting that went on after the outbreak, I'm hoping I can glean enough to keep me alive at least for a little while longer. July 4th, year one. It's Independence Day, for the undead that is. There are no fireworks nor parades for the living. The streets crawl with monsters lurching, all wide-eyed, gray-skinned, stains of gore washed down their faces and clothing. I've had to camp in the outskirts for the past few nights. Sleep is a commodity that seems out of reach. I've stuck to wide, open areas, fields, forests, one would think that buildings might grant the best protection. That assessment is wrong. I broke into an abandoned house only to find its rooms thronged with undead. They tend to stay out of the sun like most animals, sticking to shade, well-ventilated buildings. Walking into an uncleared house most likely means walking into a fight. Last night I heard them close by. I sleep lightly these days. They seem to have acute senses of smell. No matter what, precautions I take before bedding down, setting camp in seclusion, foregoing a campfire, they seem to home in on me. They have this kind of guttural rasp that chills me when I hear it. That rasp acted as my alarm clock this morning at about 2 a.m. Picked up my Glock, which I keep under a rumpled up jacket I use for a pillow, and rolled up onto my haunches. I must have blinked 20 times before the sleep left my eyes. I spotted four of the gangly things in the shadows. I was lucky. They tend to be communal, walking in packs of 8 to 12. They don't display much in the way of stealth. It's their hunger that drives them. They simply smell fresh meat and lean in that direction until their feet start moving. I only have a pistol and I'm no marksman, so I waited until I could just about make out their expressions. Cold. Blank. Lifeless. It's one thing to drop one from a hundred yards when you can't see into its eyes. It's another to fire at them when you can recognize their features as human. I dropped the four of them with ten bullets, cursing my waste of slugs. I guess I'll have to add a gun shop to my list of stops. I'd like a hunting rifle and maybe a few security cameras and motion sensors to take back to Warden. My goal tomorrow is to hit the grocery store and supply up. I'll try to find a phone book and look up the location of the closest place that sells guns. Maybe an outdoor supplier or a pawn shop. I'll check in again if I'm still alive.
11, July 5th, year one. When I was a kid, we only had one theater in our town. The theater is still around. When everything folded up, they were still playing second and third release films for two bucks a head. Back in the day, they used to offer a charity night. Any kid who showed up with canned or dry goods got in for only 25 cents. I and my little brother, Rule, regularly went to the charity night at the movies. We'd raid my mom's pantry and take the scrappings. I remember turning in more than one can of tomato paste or leftover Chinese noodles to get my butt into a cheap seat. I imagine the food bank gets a lot of the leftover garbage that people don't want to eat. When I finally reached the grocery store today, most everything had been looted. I was hoping for hostess fruit pies at best and shredded wheat at worst, but all I could find were a few cans of stewed tomatoes and a case of kippered snacks. It was almost like karma had swung back around on me. You get what you give, as they say. But all things considered, I've never smelled anything so wonderful as that fishy scent wafting from the can as I turned the key on those kippered snacks. Crackers and Tabasco sauce. While the Tabasco sauce had been looted from aisle four, I'll never know. Would have made my little meal into a delicacy but beggars can't be choosers. I discovered in the grocery store that the undead not only feed on human flesh, but they had helped themselves to the meat department. Some of them had even expired on the glut, perhaps not willing to leave such a supply of food. As I explored the store aisle to aisle, I heard them coming into the building. They're always just a couple of steps behind me. If I stop for very long, I'm talking an hour, maybe two, they peel out of the background, hungry for a bite. I haven't been able to sleep much at all since leaving Warden Junior High. I've managed to snatch cat naps here and there, but my nerves don't allow me to sink into any kind of restful slumber. I can't go on the way I'm going. I need sleep, or I'm going to collapse. If I collapse, they'll get me. I have an idea. I mentioned the undead's theoretical sense of smell. I'm going to test a theory. I think this grocery store is the perfect place to do it. It's getting close to evening, and I'm wiped out. I'm gonna find the smelliest dumpster in the place and bury myself in the stench of garbage and go to sleep. In theory, if I close the lid, keep my handgun close by, I have a good chance of surviving the night. I don't believe the undead have the faculties to open a dumpster lid, and if they do, the clatter will undoubtedly wake me. At that point, I'll just open fire. Twelve, July 6, year one. Back in the ninth grade, I took English from Mr. Rumor. He attempted to fill our young sponge-like minds with plenty of anti-religious dogma, the good helping of atheism on top. He taught his agenda under the guise of separation of religion from state. I grew up in a staunch Christian home. My parents took me to church every week and regularly informed me that with all of my Bible reading, Sunday school lessons, and sermons taught by Pastor Ken Willie, our ever so enthusiastic spiritual leader, they were vesting me with the armor of the Lord against a terrible world full of temptation and debauchery. As a young adult, I strayed thinking my parents and Pastor Kent Willie were full of paper-thin ideals and fanaticism. It was more harmful than anything. But after three years of partying at college and ultimately waking up in the basement of an abandoned building with no recollection of what had happened the night before, I began to see the light. 
I was reminded of Sid Vicious, the bass player for the Sex Pistols. He used to cut himself and bleed on stage during performances. His arm marked with tracks and fresh bandages where he'd injected heroin. One day, Sid woke up in the bathroom of his hotel room with his girlfriend dead, stabbed to death to be exact. Sid had no recollection of what had happened. Ultimately, unable to conquer his drug habit, Sid died of a heroin overdose supplied by his own mother. I thought about Sid when I woke up in that abandoned basement back in my college days. I also thought about my parents and Pastor Kent Willie. It was at that moment that I decided Mr. Rumor and Sid Vicious could suck it. I was God's boy. I've been God's boy ever since. Something Mr. Rumor taught me back in the ninth grade came to my mind as I woke up this morning. As part of his atheistic agenda, he had assigned us Dante's Inferno as reading assignment. His hope was to reveal the absurdity of Dante's interpretation of hell. As I lie here in a dumpster behind the grocery store, my motorcycle parked well away. Canto 11 from Inferno comes to mind. In this section of Dante's work, he and Virgil walk through the city of Dees to another pope's tomb. Something awful costs Dante a scent that he compares to opening the bathroom door at his work and smelling the abominations of the people who accompanied the space before him. He is describing one of the lower rings of hell. As I lay in waste, a crate of broken eggs, meat crawling with flies, rotten lettuce, and fetid grease, I feel like I'm visiting... Dante's Lower Ring of Hell. This has been The Bloody Journal of Lance King, Part 1 of 3, written and performed by Craig Nibo. Warning, I'm going to say the word zombie at least 20 times in the next few minutes. Not to double down or triple down or quintuple down for that matter on the zombie theme, I thought I'd lay a song on you from the first zombie sing-along album. I think this is the first zombie-related song I ever wrote. It appears on the singer-songwriter-styled album Zombie Sing-Along 1. One day, I was thinking about how nice it was as a kid to go and visit my grandma. Now, my grandparents on my mom's side greatly impacted my life. All of my grandparents are gone now. But my grandpa, Whatcott, still holds a place as the patriarch of comedy with his well-timed comments and jokes. My grandma, Whatcott, made her backyard into a kid's wonderland with sculptures inspired by children's stories. We could walk through her grounds and see the three little pigs, wink and blink and a nod, Three men in a tub, the crooked man's house, Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater's poor wife can find in a pumpkin house. It truly was amazing, like a museum of fun. As a kid, I loved nothing more. Now, being the sick and twisted individual that I am, I thought about a family going to visit their grandma. But with one catch, grandma is a zombie. I now give you the song Grandma from Zombie Sing Along 1. Enjoy. 
always loved to go and visit grandma She's sweet and kind in her peculiar way Her lips might have some foam But we all feel right at home There at grandma's little picturesque chalet The Animals are quiet round the farmhouse We haven't seen a chicken or a cow She used to have a rooster She used to have a duck Now they've come to not Since Grandma ran amok We're off to visit Grandma We got a whole minivan full of kids Let the engine sound Cause we're driving on down to see our grandma Who is dead We'll bring her lots of red meat And we'll bring her lots of cheese As we blow her a kiss Cause we just can't get too near There ain't no one around quite like Grandma She's dilly a bit silly Since she passed Her fridge is full of pork And she doesn't use a fork She's eating rather mighty, mighty fast We miss her figgy cookies and her shortbread We miss her turkey dinner and her pie Mostly we miss Grandpa since he disappeared You couldn't ever find a better guy We're off to visit Grandma We got a whole minivan full of kids Let the engine sound Cause we're driving on down to see our Grandma Who is dead We'll bring her lots of red And we'll bring her lots of cheer And we'll be remiss as we blow her a kiss Cause we just can't get too near We can't sleep in the house when we see Grandma We have to pitch a tent out in the yard We have to lock her in with a bolt and a cotter pin And throughout the night we take turns standing guard We have to visit Grandma with a shotgun We have to belt her down and wear a mitt We have to back away but with Grandma we will stay 
We'll be safe if we all use a grandma kit. We're off to visit grandma. We got a whole minivan full of kids. Let the engine sound, cause we're driving on down to see our grandma who is dead. We'll bring her lots of red meat. We'll bring her lots of cheese. And we'll be remiss as we blow her a kiss. Cause we just can't get too near. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. <laughs>